Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Rahel Solomon, President Joe Biden, continuing his visit to his ancestral home, of Ireland. You were looking at pictures that just was fed into CNN's newsroom not long ago. You can see the president arriving there at the Fairley Estate in Dublin. It's about 2 p.m. Eastern. We'll see him here shake hands with his Irish counterpart there, the prime minister. Looks to be a sunny day as they both greet, shake hands, at some point pose for a photo op. This is, of course, part of the U.S. president's three-day trip in the region. Now, after meeting with the country's president, as we have seen, he has just arrived to have talks there with the prime minister. In terms of topics, the war in Ukraine, well, that's high on the agenda. And then later he is scheduled to address the Irish Parliament. You can also see him wearing a a fitting green tie there. Nick Robertson now live in Dublin with the latest. So, Nick, tell us a bit more about the, the bilateral talks happening. Yeah, meeting with the Prime Minister right now. The President's expected to go and watch some Gaelic football action, uh, a youth team playing, so he'll get a sense of uh, how sports is going on here. It's been, you know, a relatively diplomatic light lift for the President today, meeting with uh, the President of Ireland, Michael Higgins, earlier planting a tree. He got to meet Mishnock, uh, one of two uh, President Higgins, two Bernese mountain dogs. Um, perhaps it wasn't an expected greeting. The dog barked at the president and uh, the, the uh, Irish president invited the dog to come out. So the uh, president Biden meeting Mishnock. Um, he is going to have uh, a speech, a rare speech for U.S. presidents, the fourth only U.S. president to speak to a joint uh, uh, upper and lower house of the Irish parliament, the Oroctus here, just on the street behind me in a couple of hours. And I think there we'll get to hear the president, you know, again, formulate his ties, his family's ties to the country, but really go deeper and broader to uh, explain how he feels that Ireland and the United States are so, uh, are so connected and the importance of that and how it benefits both countries and where they have a shared vision, a shared a, a vision of, of, of democracy, a shared vision uh, of how to um, help Ukraine in the war there over Russia's invasion. So I think these are the things we'll hear the president speak about. And of course, he'll probably also speak again about the importance of the Good Friday peace agreement that he was in Northern Ireland just yesterday, celebrating the 25th anniversary of it. Hmm. A trip that certainly has uh, diplomatic considerations, but also personal considerations. Nick Robertson, thank you. Live for us there in Dublin. Let's turn to France now, where hundreds of thousands of people are protesting against pension reforms this hour. Let's go to Paris, where protesters force their way into LVMH luxury headquarters, the owners, of course, of Louis Vuitton. One union leader is saying that President Macron can find money to finance the pension system at LVMH. It is now the 12th day of demonstrations this year against the widely unpopular reform that would raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. This all comes on the eve of the country's highest court deciding if these reforms are constitutional. But for now, protests continue. So let's bring in Nada Bashir. She is with protesters in Paris. So Nada, uh, set the scene for us there. What are you exactly seeing and what are protesters telling you? 
look, as you can see, well, there's already a huge turnout behind the authorities, anticipating figures at around 400 to 600,000 people taking to the streets across France. We saw uh, similar figures last week. And where we are right now, it has to be said, it is very peaceful, very calm. It appears to be almost a carnival atmosphere. But further up the road, towards the front of the march is where we are seeing that heavy police presence. And of course, there is going to be a significant police presence given the pockets of violence and tensions that we have seen in past weeks. This is, of course, the 12th round of protests against this pension reform. And of course, with the Constitutional Council due to make its decision tomorrow, this is essentially the final opportunity for union members and other demonstrators to make their voices heard. And so we are anticipating that significant turnout once again, although over the last few weeks we have seen the total turnout dwindling somewhat from those record-breaking figures we saw earlier in the year. And of course, the huge focus is uh, the pension reform, the raising of the pension age, the time and age from 62 to 64. And this is happening against the backdrop of a country that is facing a significant cost of living crisis. Many, of course, struggling. But the real focus is, of course, the raising of that retirement age. We are anticipating that the Constitutional Council will come to its decision tomorrow evening. It is anticipated that the legislation itself will pass, although there is the possibility that some aspects of the legislation itself will not be passed, not be greenlit by the Constitutional Council. And we are already hearing from some of the larger unions here in France saying that they will continue to protest if the legislation is greenlit, regardless of that, in some form or other. And of course, there is a significant amount of anger and frustration being directed towards President Macron as well. His government, of course, passing through that legislation, forcing the legislation through the lower house of parliament without a final vote. We've seen attempts by the government to try and speak to the unions, to try and negotiate. Those talks last Wednesday uh, failed with the government refusing to move from its position. President Macron uh, this week saying that he does hope to continue those talks with the union regardless of the decision to pass the legislation if the Constitutional Council does so tomorrow. But look, today there is the anticipation that there could be once again pockets of violence. We've seen in the past protesters using smoke bombs, uh, flares, waving paint towards the police. And in response, we've seen the riot police heavily mobilised and using tear gas and even water cannons to disperse the crowds. It is still very early on. The protest is only just kicking off, but there is the anticipation that things could potentially turn violent later on today. Rahab? Nada Bashir, a lot more to watch there. Thank you. And so now let's actually go to Fred Plykin because he is at the front of the protest march in Paris. And Fred, I'm not sure if you heard Nada there, but she said at one point it sort of felt more like a carnival atmosphere where she was. But at the front of the protest is where you see more of the uh, police, the law enforcement presence. What are you seeing where you are? Either, yeah, well, we're trying to keep up with the front of the march, but so far we're, we're falling back a little bit. But I would say that the view that we've gotten so far is a little bit different. In fact, at the front of the march, we did see several standoffs already between the police and some of the protesters, especially when the protesters were set to march past the Constitutional Council. Now, of course, as Netta already said, that Constitutional Council is set to announce its decision tomorrow whether or not this proposed pension reform that's been put forward by the government of Emmanuel Macron, whether or not that is completely in line with the Constitution, or at least in parts or maybe totally against the Constitution. And the protesters tried to break through a police line there, and we did see a standoff 
between the police officers and protesters, there were some bottles that were thrown. So you do see it is quite a charged atmosphere. I have seen some protesters also spray painting some walls. So you can see that there are a lot of people who are extremely angry. I think one of the things that's really interesting though, if you look around, you see some of the folks that are marching past now. There are also a lot of younger people who have joined this protest. And I think one of the things that Neto was saying, which is completely correct, is a lot of folks here, to them, of course, it is about the pension reform, but it's also in large part about the way that Emmanuel Macron is trying to do all this. The fact that he used executive powers to try and push all of this through, a lot of people believe that that's just not right. And of course, that's causing serious damage to Emmanuel Macron politically as well, where some people are already saying that he's essentially a lame duck president, despite the fact that he still has several years left in his second term. So what we've seen so far is also a lot of peaceful protesting, a giant turnout, but also we have seen some standoffs already in the early stages of this march between the riot police and the protesters that are on the street today. And we've seen what, what's happened at LVMH as well. Uh, Fred, in terms of tomorrow's ruling, are we expecting a simple resolution or might this be more complicated than many people expect? And would any of this really be enough to appease protesters? I think, first of all, I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of this is a lot more complicated than many people think. Uh, it's very difficult to see what you're going to expect from the Constitutional Council. They are obviously a fully independent body. They are essentially this country's constitutional court. Now, it is very rare that they would completely overturn a law. And we do have to understand that some of the folks that are on that council are actually political appointees of Emmanuel Macron. There is a chance that parts of that law become overturned by the council. As you can see, some folks dancing here. There is a chance that parts of that law become overturned, uh, maybe marginal parts of that law. But there are very few who believe that the Constitutional Council will declare the law in its entirety uh, to be against the Constitution. However, it is true that the unions here in this country have said that no matter what the Constitutional Council decides tomorrow, that they will continue to go on the streets. So there is definitely serious political damage that has been done to Emmanuel Macron. There certainly is also serious damage that has been done in general to the political system here in this country. In fact, there are some who are saying that this standoff, the protests that you're seeing here, and the fact that Emmanuel Macron really hasn't done very much to try and get into some sort of dialogue with the people who are against this reform is essentially helping the far right here in this country. So much to watch, Fred, both in terms of this ruling tomorrow, but also in terms of the reaction to the ruling. Fred Pleiken, great to see you in Paris there. Thank you. And back here in the U.S., jury selection is set to begin in the $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News, brought by Dominion Voting Systems. Opening statements are expected to start Monday in Wilmington, Delaware. You're now looking at a live picture of that courthouse. Now inside, the judge rejecting a last-minute request from Dominion to split the case into two trials. Dominion says that it was put at a disadvantage because Fox withheld key information about Rupert Murdoch's official role at the company. More on that now from CNN's Brian Todd. Stinging setbacks for Fox News in the defamation case against the network by Dominion Voting Systems. Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis says he plans to appoint an outside attorney, a so-called special master, to investigate whether Fox News lied to the court and withheld key evidence in the case. 
Dressing down Fox's attorneys from the bench, Judge Davis said, quote, I am very concerned that there have been misrepresentations to the court. This is very serious. No one wants to head into a trial, particularly a trial where $1.6 billion is on the line with the judge upset with them. Uh, you especially don't want to head into a trial that is about knowing falsity uh, with the judge thinking that you have engaged in misrepresentations. Judge Davis also imposed a sanction on Fox over that same matter. The judge has expressed frustration over Fox not being forthcoming over Chairman Rupert Murdoch's role at the company. Fox lawyers had long claimed Murdoch doesn't have an official role at Fox News, that he was only an officer at Fox Corporation. It was only clarified recently that Murdoch is also an officer at Fox News. Dominion is quite upset to be learning at the last minute that that role might be different than it was told. You can see that the judge here agrees. Fox denies wrongdoing and says it properly disclosed Murdoch's roles. Also this week, another reveal of the enormous scope of internal debates at Fox News. And I actually want to take you back to Dublin, where we can see President Biden speaking to the Irish Prime Minister right now. Let's listen together. It's not easy to welcome Ukrainians here and the leadership you've shown. And uh, I just think that uh, um, it feels so good to be able to have this emerging and stronger and stronger relationship between the United States and Ireland. I think our values are are the same, and I think... uh, our concerns are the same, so I'm really looking forward to continue to work with you. Thank you, um, and look forward later on, later on to hearing about um, your visit to Belfast and your, your meeting with the party leaders, where we're very keen to see the Good Friday Agreement institutions functioning again, and uh, Prime Minister Sunak and I are going to be working together uh, on that, um, but really want to thank you and your administration and your country's leadership um, when it comes to Ukraine because I never thought in my lifetime that we'd see a war of this nature happen in Europe again. And uh, democracy and liberty and the things that we believe in are on retreat, or in retreat in large parts of the world. And if it wasn't for American leadership, and if it wasn't for America and Europe working together, I don't know what kind of world we'd live in. So we we really do appreciate your, your leadership and your personal leadership both in terms of securing peace in Ireland, but also in trying to protect democracy and liberty here in Europe. Well, I think what you and uh, uh, Prime Minister Sunak worked out in terms of the other accords was very valuable as well. So I'm looking forward to talking about a lot of this in detail. Thank you. And straight ahead, inflation in the U.S. is slowing. But what does that mean for the Fed as it thinks about more rate hikes? We'll discuss after the break. Welcome back to First Move. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank last month triggered a crisis in the U.S. banking sector and volatility in global markets. And even though the dust has settled, there are still some lingering concerns over the strength of regional U.S. banks. During the Semaphore's World Economy Summit in Washington on Tuesday, President Joe Biden's top economic advisor, Leo Brainerd, spoke with my colleague Poppy Harlow. Brainerd said that she thinks that America's banking system is, quote, sound and stable. Do you think there will be more bank failures this year? So I think what is important um, is uh, that banks have now seen, bank executives have seen some of the stresses um, that the two failed banks were under and they're shoring up their balance sheets and, you know, they are 
convincing um, depositors and investors alike that they have a good strategy and they are risk managing effectively. Um, if a bank is not effective in doing that, then I think um, you know you might still see some investors really uh, pushing harder. Um, so we'll Run. see in the months ahead. No, I think um, this is very much an individual uh, set of banks that took some unusual risks. And so I think investors are just um, you know, very attuned to those risks. And bank management know they need to show that they have viable business models. I think one of the questions now is many Americans feel like all of their deposits um, to an unlimited ceiling are going to be insured because that was what was guaranteed to these two banks and how can you not do it for the rest if it were to come to that? So we took very targeted actions in the case of two banks uh, that were poorly managed and took unacceptable risks and failed. Those were targeted actions. They were strong actions, but they were targeted on very specific risks. But does that mean should we see another bank failure in the next year, it would not be the case that all depositors are protected at every level? Yeah, so I think um, we do have, we've seen a playbook. It works very well, uh, but it is relevant for banks that fail. Um, I think more broadly, uh, there's questions uh, that may be addressed over a longer period of time um, where I think the FDIC has taken it upon itself to do a study Mm -hmm. uh, and think about more broadly, uh, should we think differently about deposit insurance? And that's on a slower track. Now to another key inflation report for the Federal Reserve to consider out in the last hour. U.S. wholesale prices saw a sharp cool down in March, growing by 2.7 percent, 2.7 percent, down from 4.6 percent in February on an annual basis. That comes after Wednesday's consumer price index showed that inflation cooled for a ninth straight month in March, although still a long way from the Federal Reserve's target. Meanwhile, minutes from the Fed's March meeting showed that economists at the Fed think that fallout from the recent banking crisis could push the U.S. economy into a recession. Joining me now is Dana Peterson. She is the chief economist at the conference board. Dana, great to have you today. Great being here. Thank you. Let's start with the producer price index report. I mean, a pretty sharp cool down, a a two handle. Does this surprise you at all? It seems to be falling quite sharply. It's not surprising. We've seen supply chain constraints loosen. And we've also seen that there's less demand for goods, and that's showing up in the PPI and also in the CPI. But the key thing here that's driving inflation, especially consumer inflation, is services, especially for housing. And that's not going to show up in the PPI. Hmm. And let's talk about the Consumer Price Index and what we saw. I mean, how concerned are you about the tightness that we still see in the labor market? There are 9.9 million open jobs right now. I think that works out to about 1.7 open jobs for every one person looking. How, how much are we seeing that tightness show up in wages uh, in the inflation data? Well, certainly wages are showing up in services. And that's also where the job gains are. It's mainly those experiential services where people go out and enjoy things like restaurants and hotels and travel and entertainment and movies. And that's where the labor shortages are. Those are the industries that suffered the most during the pandemic and are still trying to recoup all the lost jobs uh, from that period of time. And certainly that's where the biggest job gains are and certainly where you don't have enough workers and the labor shortages are showing up and hence the big wage increases that are being reflected in consumer in consumer inflation. And Dana, of course, the, the strong labor market has uh, in part 
fueled the consumer spending we've seen, and the U.S. consumer has really been remarkably resilient throughout this period. What are you seeing at the conference board in terms of uh, spending intentions moving forward? Well, our measure of consumer confidence indicates that consumers are really not that interested in buying durable goods anymore. Certainly, they cost more, and certainly you have to finance them, and interest rates are higher. But they're also starting to pull back on services, especially discretionary services, and anything that's really expensive. They're shifting their spending towards cheaper forms of entertainment, like streaming at home, and also services that they really need, like financial services and health care. Well, to that end, Dana, I think that's interesting because if we start to see a significant pullback in good spending and we start to see a significant pullback in services spending, I mean, what's the forecast in terms of if we see a recession and when? Well, that has been our forecast that there will be a recession in the U.S., but it will be short and it will be shallow. And it will be a reflection of less spending from consumers and also business investment pulling back, especially we've already seen it in housing. We'll see it in IP and structures and equipment. The other thing is that we have seen some tightening in financial conditions in the wake of the U.S. banking crisis. It's been uh, especially evident in C&I loans, and that's really affecting businesses, and also in residential investment, that's going to affect housing. So mm-hmm. putting all this together, we do expect there's going to be a recession. Maybe it's starting around now, but we'll be out of it by the end of this year, most likely. Dana, how much should the Federal Reserve and Chairman Powell consider that tightening that you just mentioned there that we're already seeing in lending standards? I mean, it's certainly something that Jay Powell mentioned at the last meeting, but how significantly, how much weight should they place uh, in that tightening that we're seeing when they meet again in a few weeks? I guess what I'm asking you is, do you expect another rate hike? We do expect another rate hike, maybe even two, 25 basis points each. And that's because inflation is still very sticky. Yes, headline core CPI came off and came down to 5%, but the core was still at 5.6%, and it's not really moving downward. And that's what the Fed's concerned about. Inflation is still the biggest issue for the economy, and if inflation expectations remain elevated and people think that prices are going to continue to rise, then that can cause an even worse downturn than what we expect. So another two rate hikes. Do you think the conversations in the investment community about rate cuts this year are premature? I do think that they are premature. Most likely the Fed's going to raise rates, get them to just above 5% and keep them there for the balance of this year because they're looking for inflation to, to be lower. We think that both headline and core inflation gauges, especially for the PCE, probably won't get down to 2% until the end of next year. And that's really what the Fed is also anticipating. So that means that rates need to stay elevated for longer than what investors are probably pricing in. Hmm. Let's circle back to where we started. I think the the labor market, it's an area that I care about a lot personally. In terms of what areas of the U.S. labor market are most sensitive, most vulnerable to uh, layoffs moving forward, what categories, what industries are you looking at specifically? We think it's going to be the pandemic darlings or the former pandemic darlings, including technology, uh, in information, also warehousing and transportation, which are very closely linked to goods, goods production and also consumption, but also real estate and construction, which are sensitive to higher interest rates and finance. So all of these industries that really did well during the pandemic are seeing the underside of that now. And that's probably where the weakness is going to be going forward.
Mm, you can argue that some of those industries, too, also uh, really overhired over the pandemic. And so now you're starting to see perhaps what some would call a correction. Uh, Dana Peterson, we're going to have to leave it here, but great to talk to you today. She is the chief economist at the conference board. Thank you. And stubbornly high inflation and the uncertain interest rate environment, just a few of the key topics at the IMF spring meetings in Washington this week. Julia Chatterley takes an in-depth look at all of the challenges facing global economies during a special edition of First Move, live from IMF headquarters on Friday. And joining her on the show, World Bank President David Malpass, Allianz and Gramercy advisor Mohamed Alarian, and other key global financial figures. So you don't want to miss it. That is First Move, live from the IMF tomorrow, right here on CNN. Welcome back to First Move. FS Investments there ringing the opening bell. That means that U.S. stocks are, of course, up and running on Wall Street. And it's a positive start to the trading day. Dow opening slightly higher there, but that's thanks to some encouraging news on the U.S. wholesale prices that we've been talking about. But also brand new challenges just ahead for U.S. investors because major U.S. banks begin reporting first quarter profits on Friday. And certainly in this environment, you can bet that it is sure to make some news when the banks report. Meantime, cities across France are seeing a 12th day of strike action and protests. Up to 600,000 people are expected to take to the streets to oppose the government's pension reforms. In Paris, protesters forced their way into the headquarters of the luxury goods giant LVMH, which owns Louis Vuitton. I want to take you now back to Paris. Well, these are pictures that were actually already fed into CNN, but we have been looking at live pictures throughout the program. Now, these demonstrations come ahead of a court ruling due this Friday on the constitutionality of the divisive law. Of course, raises the retirement age by two years to 64. Saskia Van Dorn reports. Anger on the streets of France. Macron resign. Protesters all united against a defiant president. If you want the pact between generations to be fair, this reform needs to be carried out. Pension reforms were a landmark policy of President Emmanuel Macron's re-election campaign, but upping the retirement age from 62 to 64 may have been a step too far for too many. Forcing the bill past one of the two parliamentary chambers, pouring fuel on the fire of popular anger. Much of that ire has come Macron's way. Now it is really against denunciation of the president himself. I don't think in the history of the Fifth Republic we have seen so much rage, so much hatred at our president. With most French people polled supporting the protests, his approval ratings are nearly the lowest of his two terms. At just 28% in March, it was only worse during the Yellow Vest protests. Four years ago, popularity at rock bottom, hundreds of thousands in the streets weekly. For Macron, the Yellow Vests protesting what they called economic injustices upset his first term. He now faces a similar risk. The deficit balancing move slammed by many as tone deaf will face its final hurdle here Friday, France's equivalent of the Supreme Court. It will either rubber stamp it or deem that some parts or indeed the whole thing is unconstitutional, which would be a further embarrassment for President Macron. 
For the young reformer, pensions were supposed to be the first of several policy revamps, but his crusade of government reform now looks dead in the water, with little hope of energising lawmakers behind yet more controversial policy rethinks. And his legacy may be even more troubled, opening the door to the far right. The comparison with Barack Obama applies. He's paving the way to the coming to power of a populist leader. And he will be remembered in history as the man who allowed Marine Le Pen to finally come to power. With four years remaining in his term as president, we may still not know the true cost of Macron's hunger for reform for quite a while. Meantime, we are learning new details now about who might have been behind the leak of highly classified documents from the Pentagon. The Washington Post spoke to a friend of the alleged leaker who said that the documents were posted to an online chat room by someone who worked at an unidentified military base. Some members of the chat group are apparently from Russia. The Post reports that the photos included highly classified satellite images and detailed battlefield charts from Ukraine. Now, CNN has not independently verified the report, but President Biden did comment on the issue for the first time in Dublin. Take a listen. Mr. President, could you give an update on that leak investigation, the leaked documents from I, DOD? I, I can't right now. There is a full-blown investigation going on, as you know, with the intelligence community and the Justice Department, and they're getting close. CNN cybersecurity reporter Sean Lindgrass joins me now from Washington. Sean, good to have you on the program. So what more do we know about this person and what are we learning about his motivations? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because uh, there's a lot of uh, murky details out there. We don't know um, the exact motivation. I mean, uh, according to the Post article, this person was in a, a chat room on the social media platform Discord for several months uh, bonding with some younger people uh, that were shared a love of video games, of, of guns, and uh, uh, of religion. And um, over a period of time, this person, who the Post calls OG, um, the leaker, uh, they mean to say, uh, started to present these uh, excerpts of these classified documents and to sort of um, uh, express his expertise on this and cultivate this, this uh, rapport with these younger people. So. Um, it's an interesting case of sort of um, almost a cult-like um, atmosphere going on in this chat room. Um, he may have been showing off. Um, he may have been disgruntled. Uh, we have to be very careful, though, um, in reporting on this because um, on the Internet, you could, anyone can pretend to be anyone, and especially on this um, platform, Discord. So uh, we're still kind of sifting through the materials. But what we do know is there's an active investigation, as President Biden just said, uh, they are honing in on who might be responsible. And, uh, you know, it'll, it, the fallout, uh, as you alluded to at the top, is ongoing with U.S. allies in terms of the sensitive uh, classified information that was divulged about troop movements in Ukraine and, and arms deals. So uh, a lot of damage that has uh, been done because of these documents, and it all may be, be because of a young person uh, online just wanting to boast and, and sort of uh, get get more friends during the pandemic, Rochelle. Mm. Right. And, and certainly in terms of the investigation, you know, President Biden saying, look, as you know, there is a full blown investigation. But he also said they're getting close. Uh, I don't have an answer for you, but they're getting close. And that says a lot. Sean, in terms of what we're learning from these documents, what seems to be perhaps the most inflammatory or damaging yeah, the, there's a, a few things that stand out. I mean, one of them is is the focus from U.S. officials on the Russian mercenary group uh, Wagner Wagner Group. It's a uh, 
uh, a group that is sort of paramilitary, supporting the Kremlin's aims, but not directly under the um, direction of the government. Uh, these documents uh, revealed the anxieties that the U.S. side has on this group in terms of their propaganda in Africa, trying to uh, win over public opinion and, and spread um, what's seemed, deemed as anti-U.S. Uh, messaging. Uh, and also, I'd say some other anxieties in the documents reflect um, some, what's been going on with China in, in Latin America. There's a section in there about um, concern that um, you know, Nicaragua in, in, you know, in Central America may be moving closer uh, to China as a result of, of Russia's invasion uh, in Ukraine. So the Ukraine war sort of permeates all of these um, documents that we've seen, but it reveals a lot of like, you know, geopolitical struggle and um, uh, questions about uh, whether Russia and China are, are undermining U.S. interests uh, around the world. Sean Lingas, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Muslims around the world are observing the holy month of Ramadan. And for many, that means abstaining from food and water from dawn to dusk. But in Pakistan, the custom is even more challenging because food has become more limited and prices have skyrocketed. Sophia Safi reports. They line up in their hundreds. Men, women and children waiting in the spring heat for a free bag of flour. Many have empty bellies as people across Pakistan observe daily fasts through the holy month of Ramadan. This year, a desperate food shortage means an evening meal is not guaranteed. 20-year-old tech worker Vakas Chaudhary has been standing in this line since the early morning. He says it's the first time in his life he's had to rely on charity. Everything has become so expensive, he says, that it has become incredibly difficult just to survive. Few in this nation of 200 million have been spared by an economic crunch that is now hurting people across class divides. Acres of farmland lie underwater after catastrophic floods last summer. Food is scarce. Prices have skyrocketed. In just one year alone, the cost of flour, a staple of Pakistani diets, has increased by over 100 percent, according to the Pakistan Bureau of Statistics. The government's attempts to wrangle a billion-dollar bailout package from the International Monetary Fund has stalled since November. The sheer number of people lined up here is unusual and speaks to the seriousness of Pakistan's food shortage crisis. Wakas follows the line as it winds its way from the busy road into a dark, musty basement. On the floor, flour gathers like dust. It will be hours before his turn comes. Prime Minister Shahbaz Sharif has announced a relief package early March, offering a bag of free flour to the poorest of the poor during Ramadan. Wakas never thought that would mean him. In the past month, close to two dozen people have died in Pakistan while waiting for food. Desperate women and children dying in the crush for a meal. Pakistan's Commission of Human Rights accused the government of mismanaging food distribution. Charity is always a big part of Ramadan. Each year, soup kitchens lay out free iftars, the meal eaten after sunset to end the daily fast. This year, the number of people relying on goodwill has doubled. There is little to celebrate for many. We can't pay our children's school fees, this man tells me. We break our fast with just water and a date. Other delicacies are only things we can dream about right now. The economic despair here won't end with a bag of flour, 
as so many in Pakistan go to bed hungry this Ramadan. Sophia Safi, CNN, Islamabad. Welcome back to First Move. The New York International Auto Show is underway here in Manhattan. And one big theme is the future of electric vehicles. Nissan is speeding ahead with electrification, recently announcing a plan to have 27 electrified models by 2030, 19 of them all electric. It comes as the U.S. government is also preparing to issue new emission standards that could make about two-thirds of new passenger vehicles sold in the U.S. all electric in less than a decade. Joining me now is Jeremy Pepin. He is the senior vice president of Nissan Motor and chair of Nissan Americas. Uh, Jeremy, welcome to the program. Great to have you. Thank you, Rahel. So clearly Nissan also betting big on electrification. Tell us a bit more about the plans uh, to turn more into EV. Yes, look, uh, the plan starts with great products. Um, so, uh, you know, this is uh, this is what this uh, industry is about. And uh, We've just launched a new uh, crossover EV area. It's uh, the vehicle that is actually behind me today. Uh, we, it's been on sale since the very late of December. We've got very strong demand for the product, exceptionally strong reviews. Uh, and we've packed the, the, this model with new technology, both in terms of connectivity and in terms of uh, uh, safety features. So um, that's what our EV plan starts with. Uh, as you mentioned, 19 uh, battery electric EVs for both uh, the Nissan and Infiniti brands and a majority of those uh, coming to the U.S. and uh, being built in the U.S. Hmm. What are some of the larger concerns among American consumers? We got some research from Gallup earlier this week, I want to say, where 41 percent of Americans said that they actually did not plan to buy an EV, but they cited uh, range anxiety. Where would they charge these cars? They cited uh, the cost of EVs. What are some of the biggest challenges from your point of view? Ah, yeah, I hear the I hear the, the the concerns from the customer, and again, the, the Nissan plan is to offer battery EVs as well as uh, combustion engines in all the main segments of the Euro, of the American market, allowing the customer to make the choice and decide when it's the right time for him uh, to move uh, from uh, one technology to the other. Uh, what's very important for the EV experience is the charging uh, facility and uh, the charging experience. And, uh, and that's going to be really what's going to allow uh, an accelerated development of the, of the EV adoption. Uh, but again, from a Nissan point of view, we will let the customer choose and we'll just offer him the choices of different powertrains. Well, and Jeremy, to that point, in terms of choices, there seem to be more and more choices. It's becoming a bit of a crowded space for these EVs. How does Nissan stand out so that when an American or when a consumer is ready to make this transition, they go to Nissan instead of a, a Tesla or another car manufacturer? Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think competition is something we, we live with in the auto industry. There are many brands and many models. And uh, yes, EVs are a, a growing space. I think uh, with the Aria, we've actually redefined uh, customer expectations in the segments uh, in terms of the uh, quality of the interior, uh, the quietness, uh, the full motion control. I, I think that's, that's the challenge that we want to bring to the market is we want to be setting what customer expectations should be in terms mm -hmm. of uh, EV experience. And uh, we are quite confident that with the models we have on the road, we're achieving that. 
And speaking of models, we got some uh, new data from the Department of Transportation told me earlier this week that at this point, there are more utility vehicles, there are more trucks on the road than sedans. Uh, is that also what you're seeing that when you when you look at the research, when you look at the data that consumers want larger vehicles, they want the utility vehicles and maybe not as much the sedans? Yeah, there's been a trend in the in the USA towards uh, uh, crossovers and SUVs uh, at the expense of sedans, but there's still a very strong sedan market. As Nissan uh, tries to answer all customer needs, we've got both a strong uh, sedan lineup that we'll continue to invest in, as well as a, as a, a strong uh, crossover and SUV lineup that we'll continue to invest in. And again, um, where we compete today with an, a combustion engine, we will compete tomorrow with an EV and, uh, and the transition will be up to the consumer and when he's ready to shift from one side to the other. Uh, one thing that Nissan has also had to contend with, of course, is rising interest rates and the impact that that then has to uh, car payments, car loans. I mean, I saw some research earlier this week that the average new car loan is more than $750 U.S. dollars a month. Now, look, it's all relative, but that is a lot of money. I mean, how how is that impacting buying decisions from consumers, these higher interest rates? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, we are seeing a lot of demand, as you know, through the pandemic and then semiconductor crisis uh, and other logistic uh, issues that the industry has been facing. Uh, the market has basically been smaller than uh, what the demand, natural demand would have been in the past two or three years. And at the moment, we're in catch up mode, I would say, through the pent up demand. So what we're seeing is demand actually still exceeding uh, the, 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 the production capacity of the industry, but there is a shift towards uh, lower price payments in terms of monthly payments, uh, lower trims or uh, more entry segments. Quite frankly, something that uh, Nissan can uh, take advantage of because we've got extremely strong and competitive offerings uh, in those uh, in those areas of, uh, of growing interest for the customers. So I think, again, uh, there is an answer to to what the customer needs. And, and mm. we are seeing the shift in terms of the lower price points. Yeah, it's a fascinating point that you uh, can perhaps offer some of these consumers who are looking to save on their monthly payments a, a lower price point option. Uh, Jeremy Pepin, we'll have to leave it here, but wonderful to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you. He's the chair of Nissan Americas. And coming up on First Move, president meets president. Joe Biden greeting his Irish counterparts in Dublin today. He will deliver a key address in the next hour. So how is the visit going down with the Irish? We'll find out after the break. And welcome back to First Move. U.S. President Joe Biden continuing his three-day visit to Ireland. He's just been holding talks with the Irish Prime Minister. We brought you those pictures here. And he will now go on to see a demonstration of Gaelic sport. This trip has great personal significance for the president, of course, given his deep Irish roots. Biden saying being in Ireland feels like he's coming home. Donny O'Sullivan is in Bellina in County Mayo, Ireland. Tony, great to see you in Ireland. So tell us, is the trip going well? Is the trip uh, being received well by the Irish there? Hey, Rahel. Yes, uh, very much so. We were uh, on the very wet and windy streets uh, on, in Dundalk County Loud last night where thousands uh, of people lined the streets for hours just to get a glimpse uh, of President Biden. As you say, um, a bit of diplomacy here, a bit of uh, a, a a bit of work happening, a bit of political work happening. He gave a speech yesterday in Northern Ireland about the Good Friday Agreement. 
Uh, but now he's very much um, in, in, I guess, almost vacation mode. He has a, another speech to do later today at the uh, a joint session of the Irish Parliament in Dublin. Uh, but then uh, after that tonight, he's being going to a state banquet dinner uh, in the city as well. And then tomorrow, he comes here to County Mayo, where his great, 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 grandfather uh, immigrated from to the United States uh, in the 19th century. Uh, when he gets here, he is going to go to Knock, which is a, a Christian pilgrimage site uh, in County Mayo, not too far from here. And then tomorrow night uh, is the main event uh, here uh, in Ballina, uh, outside the church behind me. Uh, he will be delivering a, a speech. There will be musical performances and expecting a huge turnout here tomorrow. He has very close links uh, with his, he has plenty of cousins in this town. He's visited this town twice before, once as vice president and once as a private citizen. Um, so as he said to, to reporters yesterday, it, it feels like coming home. And certainly when he comes here to Ballina tomorrow, it will feel like coming home. And Dolly, we don't have much time left, but I do know just based on some of your reporting that you've been out in the crowds with him as he's been shaking hands, uh, giving hugs. How, how are people receiving him? What are you hearing and seeing from the people there in terms of this visit? Yeah, look, I think, you know, 60 years ago, President JFK started the tradition uh, of U.S. presidents coming back to Ireland uh, to find their roots, to find their ancestral story. Uh, since then, Reagan has come. Um, um, of course, Obama uh, came. Nixon came. Uh, and now, of course, uh, Biden. Look, if you want to feel good as an American president, if you want to uh, feel like your approval ratings are high, uh, you can certainly come to Ireland and, uh, and, and be guaranteed a good time. Fair point. Donnie O'Sullivan, great to have you. Thank you. And hopefully you enjoy yourself as well while you're there. And finally, he has been Conan the Destroyer. He's been the Terminator. And now Arnold Schwarzenegger is casting himself in a more constructive role, filling in holes in the road. The former governor of California tweeting this video showing him and his team there terminating a giant pothole. He said he'd been waiting weeks for someone to do something about it. Don't we all know that experience? However, city officials who actually looked into the hole said that it was actually a trench that was dug so that the local gas company could carry out work, which isn't actually due to be complete until next month. I mean, he was trying to be helpful. Maybe they'll totally recall Arnie and his crew to dig it up again. In the meantime, that is the show for today. Great to be with you. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World is coming up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.